Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Symmetry. I couldn't forego the opportunity uh, to sit down in the virtual studio uh, with Bertrand Baudry, our next guest, before he uh, took off for his summer vacation. Uh, Bertrand has held both private and public roles, uh, in, especially in the national and also the global financial system. On the public service side, uh, Bertrand served in the French Ministry of Finance from 1995 to 1999, uh, where he held a number of roles and missions for the French National Audit Office. In 2003, uh, Bertrand was invited by then President Jacques Chirac uh, to join the diplomatic team which was preparing uh, the G8 summit in Avian. Importantly, Bertrand served as the managing director of the World Bank Group and the chief financial officer as well. Uh, Bertrand uh, today is the CEO and founder of Blue Like an Orange Sustainable Capital, an investment fund with the objectives to finance sustainable development goals with hopefully market-level financial returns. So it's with a great deal of pleasure that uh, I turn to the podcast interview with Bertrand Badri. Well, it's my pleasure uh, today to introduce and bring into our virtual studio uh, Bertrand Badri to talk about uh, the European perspective on uh, the Japanese G20 summit. Bertrand, are you there? I'm there, yes. Hello. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's let's go back uh, for a moment, uh, Bertrand, to uh, the Osaka G20 summit. That took place on uh, June 28th and 29th. Um, I wondered how the European leadership saw the summit, particularly given all these kind of reality TV moments that Trump had, you know, with Xi Jinping uh, over the uh, U.S.-China trade war, his encounters with Vladimir Putin, and uh, the, brec the breakfast with the Saudi crown prince, and then finally and maybe most dramatically, his, his short meeting with Kim Jong-un at, uh, at the Korean DMZ. So how did the Europeans think about this? Well, I think you have two, two levels, uh, the European leadership and the European population. Uh, I, I think from what I know and what I feel is that uh, a growing number of people going to the summit expect... Uh, to be more on a damage control mode. They expect everything will be okay because everything did not collapse. Uh, and so the very fact that the summit happened, that there were some conclusions, some substantial ones, mm -hmm. is okay and, and, good, and good enough in a way. Uh, and the fact that uh, the summit itself is hijacked by this type of event that you described, I think has become, uh, unfortunately, business as usual. So all in all, I think uh, there were no miracles expected. Uh, the truth is that no miracles happened, but at the end of the day, it was okay. All right. So uh, your own, uh, uh, you you did mention uh, the, the the twin views. So what about the European public? What did they think of it? 
Well, I, th- I think like in many countries, the vast majority of the population uh, doesn't really know how these things are working, what they should uh, produce, etc. So uh, from a more general public perspective, these, the side events uh, have become the core events, mm-hmm. which is very unfortunate. So if you ask people what happened in Osaka, I think most of them will uh, quote uh, one of these meetings. And, and very few would be capable of mentioning the idea that we might start to reform WTO, for instance. Mm-hmm. So it's unfortunate, but that's life. Okay. Well, and, and let's look, look at, at that kind of small group of what many analysts have called it kind of the top-tier issues that kind of are face the G20 leadership. That is, you know, uh, progress in the rules-based trade system and WTO reform, uh, the uh, de-escalation of the U.S.-China trade conflict, and then uh, the question, the collective statement potentially of leadership on an ongoing basis on the annual meetings with respect to climate change. Let's first look at the um, at the multilateral trade system, the rules-based order. Was there progress made um, at, at, at this meeting and then subsequently? Well, if I want to be a little simplistic, I say there is progress because there was no further uh, downward movement. Mm-hmm. So at least I don't think things have deteriorated. Some words have been put together. So again, you, you cannot jump on the, on the table and say, yes, great, it's done. But at least it's not uh, killed yet. <laughs> so it's it's very difficult. Uh, what, I don't know if I'm clear, but that, that's really... Uh, What do you think, because this just happened within the last few days, uh, what did you think of the fact that Canada and the European Union actually came together with what they call an interim agreement with respect to the dispute resolution system? What what do you make of that in terms of uh, the trade system? I I think these are important signals. They are necessary, but not sufficient. But they are necessary. And it's a signal sent to the world that not everybody is aligned with the idea that the system is dead. And I think it's an eminent, I speak as a European and as a French, Mm -hmm. it's an eminent duty and responsibility of us to find the right partner, as I said earlier, to do as much possible damage control. Mm -hmm. I think... Unfortunately, for the time being, I've renounced the idea that we can make a better world. But I think we should really work on the idea that we, we should not make this world worse than it is today. And so I think Europe and France in particular, with the G7 coming in a few weeks now, yes. have the responsibility to send a positive signal that, yes, we can, we can move on that front. That's also why uh, I supported the agreement between the EU and, and Canada, which has been a big deal in France this week. Uh, or the EU and Mercosur, or the EU and Japan. Of course, these trade agreements are not perfect, and uh, many things are debatable, uh, but they need to exist. We need to say, yes, guys, we continue to trade, we continue to work together, we continue on, on a rules-based regime, and I think it's important. And if it doesn't work, then we'll amend it and change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's important to send the signal. I, I was appalled, actually, when I saw some of the French leaders uh, saying, oh my God, uh, all these agreements, uh, free trade, this is, uh, uh, this is the end of the world, uh, this is burying our way of living, etc. This is irresponsible. Mm-hmm. I think we really have to continue moving, recognize they are not perfect, and, and don't be 
don't have a kind of magic thinking, yeah, this will solve all the problems. But I think we need to maintain the lines open. And I think from that perspective, Canada, Japan, and the EU have a particular responsibility in today's world, yes. And I think you made reference then to, I take it, the National Assembly's uh, approval, uh, the French National Assembly's approval of CETA um, actually this past week. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's correct, yes. Okay. And uh, I take it that, uh, that maybe there will be some statements, comments from the French leadership uh, when Biarritz uh, occurs, that's the G7 meeting, uh, in the next few weeks. Yeah. Okay. So again, for me, uh, I understand that none of this is perfect, but to, to, to caricature this agreement saying it's open door to, uh, you know, uh, bad heat or whatever, doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So again, we have to make these things happen, and we don't have to be blind to, to the fault lines, but we have to be uh, open to the idea that yes, we need to maintain the channels open. We need to maintain trade. That if we all go back to our own borders, if we all do our own Brexit from all the systems, then we have a problem. That's why I think we need to maintain, even if they are disappointing, these summits, etc., because as long as people talk, they talk, and they don't stop talking. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there is that problem. Uh, let's switch a little bit to, to, to the the U.S.-China front. Um, you know, the U.S. has pushed uh, very hard, obviously, in the tariffs that it is imposed on, on China, and now apparently the kind of continuing negotiation or the return to negotiation uh, with China. Uh, but there's a constant, well, there appears to be a great deal of talk, particularly out of Washington, on this kind of perspective of a new Cold War and even a discussion among um, uh, experts, etc., officials, former officials, on this notion of decoupling uh, with uh, China, that is decoupling between China and the United States, particularly around the technology. What, you know, what does the European leadership think of this? I think there is a little bit of shadow Freud. Uh, yeah. I think I live in Washington, so I've seen, I've seen that firsthand. And I believe that this uh, China front is probably the one that, is, that has the most bipartisan support. And I've met a number of people which have worked in the previous administration who sometimes a little bit shameful say we should have done this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Europeans are probably not... Uh, are not uncomfortable with the fact that the U.S. are shooting first. Uh, so they try to navigate the system. But you, you, you see that the way people speak of China is not exactly the same as a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. Uh, so to a certain extent, whether it's good or not, it's, it's, it's another question, but to a certain extent, uh, the Trump position, the Trump administration position in China has scaled the complexes that people had to discuss China. And so it's interesting to see how things will evolve. Then after that, of course, people are nervous that the minute the U.S. are done with China, they will turn to Europe mm-hmm. on cars or cheese or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, which basically we should keep in mind. I mean, it's not just a U.S.-China thing. It's, it's more global trade and we're not to lose. But I think for the time being, people are interested in the fact that the U.S. are shooting first. And, uh, and basically... Uh, putting the finger on things which are an issue for everybody. 
You know, what's interesting for those of us who have followed the, uh, the trade regime, what appears to be odd, and this is both for Europe and the United States, there was no fundamental kind of press pressure through the WTO uh, system to try to uh, uh, challenge some of the Chinese behavior uh, with respect to subsidies, with respect to, uh, uh, you know, kind of the obligation to transfer technology, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, why was Europe, you know, not prepared to be more forceful, uh, let's say, in Geneva, in the WTO? Well, because we, we are, despite the fact that trade is, is, a, is a commun, EU prerogative, and we should discuss trade as the EU, uh, every country has its own commercial interest. Mm-hmm. And China has been pretty good at dealing with Germany and dealing with the UK and dealing with France and dealing with every, with Italy more, more recently, etc. Uh, so on the one hand, uh, only the EU is empowered to sign anything related to trade. On the other hand, Every country is making its own uh, shopping visit to China. So it's pretty straightforward. If I were in Chinese shoes, I would do the same. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's switch a little bit in another element of the um, uh, uh, Osaka meeting and, and the leader's declaration. There were two paragraphs uh, in the uh, declaration. These are paragraphs 35 and 36. And in the first, a very strong statement about the irreversibility, as there had been in the Argentinian leader's declaration, irreversibility of the Paris Agreement and those 19 who support it. And then paragraph 36, which was an extended discussion over, you know, America's opposition to the Paris Agreement and its own uh, so-called climate change policy. Um, my understanding was that, and many of us, that that. Uh, Abe was trying to craft a single um, kind of diluted uh, paragraph uh, on climate change, but that, in fact, uh, uh, President Macron, in particular, um, uh, weighed in and said that if there wasn't a strong statement of support for the for Paris Agreement, that, that the French, and I take it also potentially the Germans, weren't prepared to sign uh, off on the uh, Osaka Declaration. What's your reading of what the Europeans were up to at that point? Well, I think it, it, it was very interesting because Macron spoke first and very loud, and I think ahead of his own G7 meeting, he couldn't uh, look weak on climate. He has been also tasked by the UN uh, with uh, Qatar and Jamaica to work on, on, on climate and finance, etc. So he's a visible figure on this round this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the first point number one. Point number two, he has been able to regroup the European country on that front. And so if you, once you get there, it was impossible, uh, to have even a very uh, weak, uh, united front on, on climate. So it's unfortunate. I think we have to get used to these type of things where not everything is signed at 20. Uh, so, again, for me, the outcome was already, uh, the minute I heard Macron say that, I was almost convinced the outcome would be the one we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and of course, as chairman of the G20, Prime Minister Abe wanted to have uh, a declaration, but then the risk, if you have something, is that, like you had at the G7 in Charlevoix last year, 
the Americans sign, and then they take the plane and say, well, actually, we didn't want to sign this. And so, so you better be realistic sometimes. Yeah, and uh, in that case, of course, they resiled, uh, at least Trump did, after uh, um, yeah. uh, accusing accusing the prime minister, that is, the Canadian prime minister, of of not being uh, yeah. of not being truthful. Uh, so, yeah, and that's that is really counterproductive. So it's better sometimes to accept your own limits than rather kill the whole thing. So I think all in all, it was uh, given the circumstances a reasonable outcome. And what do you think, uh, based on uh, your discussions, uh, what's the hope uh, for in the, the French government uh, in particular, now that they're approaching the G7 in Biarritz, what, what's the hope for uh, results, if any, at the G7? Well, I, I think they have totally internalized the risk that it's very difficult to have everybody on board on every topic. Yeah, uh, That's probably why they would not push for a communique. Uh, I don't know how this will end up, but I know that was uh, President Macron's vision not to have a communique, but to have uh, co maybe communiques or, or announcements uh, with various numbers of people, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, what I think was interesting is that it shows as another arcing team uh, the fight against inequalities mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, in, in view of the UN summit on climate, uh, what can we do from a practical perspective uh, to address these ecological challenges. So I think uh, he, he will, and again, I'm not a spokesperson, no. uh, he will navigate between say, saying, uh, telling to the world important messages on the limits of the uh, capitalist model uh, to fight inequalities. Uh, so kind of 30,000 feet vision, mm -hmm. but also uh, trying to announce a number of very, very, very down-to-earth concrete initiatives. Uh, I don't know which one he would select, be it on plastics, be it on air conditioning, be it on, on, on the greening of the central bank system, etc. There are many which are being discussed as we speak. Uh, but the idea is really, if we want to make this summit useful, let's, let's be practical and promote practical, real initiative, not just words. Mm -hmm. And that's probably a shift in the way this summit's angle. Is, is Macron, is, are the French and President Macron, are they, you know, kind of um, sensitive to the fact that there's going to be a leaders um, a meeting at the UN with respect to the SDGs, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals? Are they going to try and tie that, uh, the G7 a bit to that? I don't to what extent they will tie this up, but of course they are sensitive. And again, France has been appointed lead on climate for, for, for the UN General Assembly, etc. Mm -hmm. So of course, uh, there are connections, uh, and the G7 is, is a milestone in this uh, journey to uh, the UN General Assembly this year, but also the journey to COP15 in Beijing and biodiversity next year, etc. So I think one of the priorities of France, and that's what actually President Macron tried to put together with his One Planet Summit concept and the One Planet Lab that he has put together, and he has asked me to call it that effort. How can we address the issue of biodiversity, oceans, climate, and finance together and bring new solutions? So mm -hmm. the G7 is the first step, and there will be many others. Okay, okay. Um, let's kind of look to the European level for a moment, uh, Bertrand. Um, uh, there were recent elections uh, uh, at the EU level 
And for the first time, uh, the center-right and the center-left uh, failed to generate a, a majority, uh, a combined majority. And what we see is strengthened a green party, a green party membership, uh, populist, nationalist forces. What, is, what does this tell us, if at all, about European popular sentiment these days with respect to the, its politics? Well, I think it's interesting because we've seen at the European level what we've seen in countries like France, or to a certain extent, or Italy or others. There's a traditional uh, conservative and social democratic party uh, are not at ease, and where uh, you have the extremes uh, rising up, mm-hmm. and in the center, centrist à la Macron, uh, or green as in Germany, which are facing good. So I think it's, it, it's interesting from a democratic perspective. I think it's, it's quite representative of what's going on in Europe. Mm-hmm. So of course it's a challenge, because when for 40 years two large parties have dominated the system and have shared the spoils every time, and you move to something which is more open, I think it creates a, a degree, if you are negative, you would say a degree of uncertainty, and if you are positive, a degree of freedom in the system. So all in all, I think it's 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 one actually of the positive points for President Macron. Uh, you have a system which basically is more flexible, mm-hmm. so sometimes challenging. Uh, but yes, you, you can have uh, different coalitions to, to agree on different things. Okay. Um, uh, the uh, after some hard, very hard bargaining, of course, at the European level. Leaders finally agreed on a new slate of leadership. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, had, the former, uh, now former German Minister of Defense, has take, will take over the presidency of the European Commission. Christine Lagarde will move from the IMF to the European Central Bank. Charles Michel, the Prime Minister of Belgium, will become the president of the European Council. What does... Uh, what do you think Macron thinks of these appointments? Do you think it helps from his perspective to advance his own European focus that he's been promoting now for quite some time? I think he's very happy because this was his idea. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. Uh, I think, uh, he, I mean, the, the old thing, uh, of course, he started pretty poorly and it's been very, very tough. But all in all, the results I don't think could have been better, uh, could not have been better for Macron. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he rightly said, all these people speak French. All these people have some, in a way, or another some French connection. And one might argue that all these people owe something to him. Uh, so I think it's pretty good. It's a pretty good outcome, honestly. Really? Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Let me then kind of expand on this. I mean, how does Macron think about? Uh, uh, this you know, kind of this the systems maintenance, particularly in the face of the current Italian leadership, uh, uh, Salvini, uh, Salvini, uh, the, and uh, what uh, whether or not uh, they uh, the French government, uh, Macron in particular, views him as a real threat. Uh, to uh, the EU and in particular the Euro as well? well I think it's one of these uh, difficult things 
Uh, first of all, the coalition in Italy is, is still quite fragile. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I don't want to be too short term, but what I've heard over the past few days uh, show that there are at least some, uh, how do you say, uh, tensions within the coalition. So right. How long will it survive? So I don't know. Second, uh, I think it's not the first time that, again, it's, it's, it's not Berlusconi, etc. Uh, but it's very interesting to see that on the one hand, the Italians are supporting the, the populist party in Italy. On the other hand, they just don't want to abandon the euros, they don't want to leave Europe, etc. So it's, it's one of these cases where you have tensions, but I don't think they will go to a point where you have an italic seat or something like this. So it it will require a lot of uh, touch and sensitivity, etc. You will have to go through painful moments like the one we had when the French had for the first time to recall its ambassador, etc. So not easy. To to be honest, with Italy, I, I, I don't expect a complete drama like with the UK. I think Italy is part of Europe. The Italians, at the end of the day, they love the Euro. Etc. So it's not going to be an easy trip, uh, but I, 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 I don't see uh, a dramatic outcome to that. Okay. Well, let's let's turn as a final issue then to our friends um, in the UK. Obviously, we there's a new uh, leadership, new cabinet, new prime minister Boris Johnson. H- how do you think uh, the European leadership? Um, uh, views um, uh, his uh, rise to prime minister um, uh, in the UK? Uh, they, they will, first of all, they will look at this with interest because when you have a new leader, that might, this might recreate some opportunity. But at the end of the day, I think people are tired of the last two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Germany might show more flexibility and, uh, and Chancellor Merkel has verbally said that she, she's willing to, to show some openness. Uh, honestly, again, I'm not any spokesperson, but uh, sure. I, I think France has expressed uh, very strong views on the fact that this Brexit thing is polluting the other conversation. Now the UK is gone, let's move forward and let's handle the right questions for Europe. Uh, so I, I believe France will show very little patience uh, that respect. So will people be open to amend on the margin? Possibly, uh, will this really change the dynamics? I don't think so. Well, that's interesting because in the first encounters, and admittedly they're uh, you know quite early, but nevertheless, I mean uh, Johnson has Boris, the Prime Minister, has said that you know kind of it can't in the, the the whatever deal can't include uh, the Irish backstop, uh, and and obviously there's been pushback from. Uh, the EU level leadership, and so you know, how, how do how do you get a result when the new prime minister immediately goes after you know what appears to be a very sensitive issue for the Europeans? Well, it just increases unfortunately the probability of a, of a Brexit with no deal, mm-hmm. which is very sad. But. but but a Brexit with no deal, how does that relate then to the to the? To the Irish question, the backstop itself. If you crash out, I have, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the very unfortunate things. No, no, but uh, it, it, it's it's uh, very sad, you know. Uh, 
I followed that quite closely for one single reason. I'm a board member of Eurotunnel, mm -hmm. so I have a particular attention to these things. Sure. And uh, why, as we said for the company, it shouldn't hurt the prospects of the tunnel because the people with people and merchandise will still cross the channel. But it's very sad. It's very sad. So, so I mean, I, I take it your concern has been, uh, as a board member and as the board, that there be the facilitation of uh, uh, passengers through the tunnel and uh, and in, uh, whether into Britain or into Europe. I take it though that that that's a, that probably is an issue in in terms of customs. Well, yes, 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 and no. I mean, this is a, this is the way media will show it. The fact is that. We'll find ways, and we already have technical solutions. So mm -hmm. uh, you have a transition period because when you change the regulation regime, you have a transition period. But at the end of the day, I have no, I mean, I have no worry that that this will not change. What I say, what I what I wanted to say with, with this reference to my board, that I'm concerned that we maintain a good level of relationship between the company and the British side. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very unfortunate. At the end of the day, I mean, the things will continue to flow through the tunnel. It doesn't change. If it's a little bit more complex, it's going to be a little bit more complex. It doesn't change anything. I see. Okay. Uh, is there is there a real prospect that uh, you know, g given the agreement and the constant refrain from, because you <laughs> seem to suggest that there's a possibility that the European leadership. Will come back to re uh, to negotiate further on Brexit, or is that just you know Boris Johnson's hope and wish, and 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 not a reality in terms of the European leadership? Honestly, I have no inside of you. I'd be extremely surprised. We just appointed a new European leadership. Mm -hmm. I don't think they want to start their their position by spending two years on renegotiating Brexit and not taking care of the other things that have been discussed in Parliament. Like you know, climate, etc. Mm -hmm. So uh, at, at some stage, now that the UK seems to have chosen Boris Johnson, it shows that okay, we want to go forward with the Brexit. Let's go forward with the Brexit, and that's it. Okay. Well, I, you know, I I want to thank you, uh, Bertrand, for uh, uh, giving us this perspective on on Europe. I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, I do hope you have a a good uh, summer break and uh, you know we'll uh, be looking closely at our friends uh, in Biarritz when the G7 meets and then at the UN etc you've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov this episode was edited by Kyle Fulton and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle you can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com